Tonight we're in Psalms 90. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Psalms 90. Next week we'll be in Psalms 103. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're our refuge, that you're our dwelling place, that you're a faithful refuge throughout all of the generations. Different generations, different times, face different challenges, but it's nothing compared to you. And so tonight we come desiring to find you to be our dwelling place, to be our refuge. Lord, would you comfort our hearts? Would you strengthen us? Would you help us to see you clearly? May we see the difficulties in our lives through your character. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalms 90 is unique because Moses wrote the psalm. Many of the psalms are written by David. Some are written by the sons of Asaph. But this is written by Moses. One of the things that we can say about Moses is he had a very difficult life. Even from conception, when he was in the womb, his wife was, his life was in danger. The Pharaoh had said that all the male boys, as soon as they were to be born, were to be killed. The midwives were under that instruction to kill the baby boys, the Hebrew boys. Could you imagine the midwives being committed to life, committed to babies, committed to new birth, yet their job was to become murderers? Well, these midwives didn't follow those instructions. Thankfully for Moses' sake and Moses was spared and his mom took the risk to go ahead and to nurse him and feed him but he was getting too loud he was getting too old and so she decided to put him in a basket on the Nile River it was the only hope that he would live God's hand was upon Moses Pharaoh's daughter hears this baby in the basket sees Moses and adopts Moses as her own son Moses knew though growing up that he wasn't an Egyptian that he was a a Hebrew. And when he was a man, he saw the Egyptians taking it out on one particular Hebrew slave. Stands up for the Hebrew slave, ends up killing the Egyptian. I think deep in Moses' heart, he knew he was doing something wrong because the Bible says he looked both ways to see if anyone was watching. You know, if you look both ways before you do something in your heart, you know that it's wrong. It demanded some action, for sure, but probably committing murder was beyond what he should have done. So he flees for his life. Now he's out in the wilderness, taking care of sheep. Forty years go by. That's a long time. Loneliness. God calls him back to confront Pharaoh. He goes reluctantly because he's got a speech problem, because he stutters. He doesn't want to go doesn't want to face his past, but the great I am is calling him, confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh delivers the children of Israel by these amazing, miraculous plagues and and signs and wonders. But the journey through the wilderness is long, and the journey through the wilderness is hard. The children of Israel struggle with unbelief, much like we do, start to complain, much like I do. The number one complaint was Moses, (laughs) It's always low-hanging fruit to complain about your leadership, right? It's easy to complain about the boss. That's easy to be able to do. And so they would complain about Moses and complain about Moses. And this generation that was delivered out of 
Egypt dies in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two that were willing to walk in faith. Moses got really good at doing funerals. He got really good at watching people die and watching people pass away. He too would die in the wilderness, not entering into the promised land because of his disobedience to God. So when Moses writes these words that we're about ready to read, I want you to know he's living it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. As they're traveling through the wilderness, they're living in tents. They don't have a permanent dwelling place. I bet they're thinking, oh, it would be so nice to have a permanent dwelling place. The desert is hot, hot, hot during the day and cold during the night. Always packing, always moving. When the cloud would move, they would have to move. Longing to have that place of security, that place of comfort. Sometimes in their flesh, even looking back to Egypt, going, oh, that's when it was really good. And somewhere along the line, Moses understands and he realizes, God, you're my dwelling place. You're my refuge. And this is a theme throughout the Psalms of God being our dwelling place and God being our refuge. And God is a a faithful refuge. We think of all of the things in life that changes. One of the things that we can be certain about is that things will change. That's going to happen in life. Relationships change, jobs change, health changes. Everything that can change does change. But God is a permanent dwelling place, and he is unchanging. How do we experience God being our refuge? Tonight, how do we make this personal and say, God, I'm coming and dwelling in you. Here, I'm in this wilderness. I'm in this difficulty. My soul is thirsty. Well, it's through faith. It's by faith that we're able to enter into God being our refuge. This is how we become God's children It's how we entered into the family of God. It's how we abide in Christ is through faith. By by trusting God with what we're going through in our lives, that enables us to enter in to him being our dwelling place. Also, by coming to the Lord. We'll see this through the Psalms. If you want a little homework, extracurricular activity, read Psalms 91 tonight before you go to bed because Psalms 91 really articulates even in greater detail, what it is for God to be our refuge. And it's coming to the Lord. God, I'm choosing to come to you. I'm crying out to you and I'm entering in to you being my dwelling place and you being my refuge. Isn't it a comfort to us to know that nothing in this life can affect God being our dwelling place? He's that secure. The Lord is our dwelling place. Together, plural, For all generations, for all generations, God has been a faithful dwelling place. We tend to get fearful for future generations, don't we? We go, man, this generation is growing up with so many challenges that we didn't grow up with. And that's true. My kids don't even know what a home phone is. Or a phone that's uh, connected to the wall, right? Their lives are radically different than our lives were based on phones and and based on technology. Imagine what the generations in past must have thought before there were automobiles and trains 
and radios and all of those changes that took place, how different life is for them. But every generation, God has been faithful. So we know for future generations, whatever the challenges are, God is going to be faithful. Young people, you may have your heart filled with fear because you're going, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if God's going to see me through. God's not defeated by the current challenges of today. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And as long as he waits for his second return, he's always going to be a faithful dwelling place. Think about God being faithful to Abraham. He was a faithful dwelling place with all of the challenges that Abraham went through. To Joshua's generation that would take the promised land, face the giants, face the walls of Jericho. God was a faithful dwelling place. We think of Isaiah, the prophet, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. Ezekiel and Daniel being in captivity in a foreign land that was totally against God, completely pagan and filled with darkness, but yet God was faithful. God was faithful in John the Baptist's generation to bring the Messiah, to bring the Christ, even though John the Baptist was martyred and beheaded. The generation of the first church, the book of Acts, and all the challenges and the excitement and the fumbles and the blunders, God was faithful in that generation. We think of more recent history, the generation of World War II, referred to as the greatest generation that is now currently passing away. Faced the Great Depression, then faced World War II, faced the Holocaust, but yet God was faithful to that generation. This week I was reading a bit about Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy. If you're not familiar with their story, they were in Holland and their families fixed watches. That was their, their trade. But believed in the Lord and their father had a heart for Jews. And it didn't start with him. His grandfather, a hundred years prior to the Holocaust taking place, in this house that Corey lived in, had a prayer meeting for Jews. Their family was praying for Jews a hundred years before the Holocaust ever happened. It's not happen chance that the tin booms stood up for God's people when the Holocaust happened. There was prayer in their family for Jews for a hundred years. The answer to the grandfather's prayers was his grandchildren, Corey and Betsy. So they began to take Jews into their home and hide them, ended up in a concentration camp. And one of the things that Betsy Tinboom encouraged Corey with, her sister, is there's no pit that God's love is not greater still. There's no difficulty in which God's love is not greater still. That's God being faithful in the midst of the generations. As Corey and Betsy were moving from one concentration camp to the next, they desperately wanted to keep their Bible and they were taking away all of their few possessions that they had. So they prayed, Lord, please let us keep our Bible. And as they were heading in and being searched, Corey was the only one that didn't get searched on two occasions and they were able to to keep their Bible. Betsy ended up passing away shortly before the war was ended. She passed away, and then Corey Tinboom was released four days later. <laughs> Just four days later. Corey went on to forgive those that had harmed her in such a way in this concentration camp and even led to the death of her sister. She would share her testimony and share the word of God. 
On one of these occasions, here comes one of the soldiers that was their guard in the concentration camp. And she chose to forgive him. She didn't want to forgive him, but she chose. He asked for forgiveness, and she extended forgiveness. It's a testimony that God's a faithful dwelling place, that God is a hiding place for us. Apply that to your heart. Apply that to your life and go, God, this is who I know you to be. I know that you're a faithful dwelling place, and I'm coming to you, and I'm believing in you, and I'm abiding in you. We see the nature of God, the nature of our dwelling place in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So before God ever created anything, before the mountains were brought forth or the earth was formed, God is in existence. The eternal existence of God from everlasting to everlasting. God has no beginning point and he has no ending point. And this just blows our minds, doesn't it? Because we have a beginning point and we know that we'll have an ending point. But God is from everlasting to everlasting. This is your dwelling place. This is our confidence that God is going to be a faithful dwelling place to all generations. He has no end. He's always been in existence. He'll always continue to be in existence. Verse 3, going down to verse 11, we see the nature of God in contrast to the nature of man. It says, you turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. The word destruction can also be translated dust. You turn man to dust. It speaks of the fact that we're headed towards the grave, but God is calling us to himself. Return unto me, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. So time to us is very different from God's perspective of time, because he's eternal, because he's everlasting to everlasting. And we understand this to some degree. Would you agree that a year goes by much quicker now at this point in your life than when you were 10? Maybe when you were 16. If you are 16, you're going to have to take our word for it. But high school really felt like forever, didn't it? A year of high school is a significant amount of time. Now we're going to sneeze and we're going to be right back at Christmas Eve services. Like a year now to me feels like a month. It just boosh, and a whole year goes by. And there's, there's some math behind that, right? When you're 10 years old, one year is one-tenth of your life, right? When you're 50 years old, well, you do the math, Okay. <laughs> From God's perspective, a thousand years to us, it's no big deal to him. Peter writes about this as well, and he says a thousand years to us is like a day unto the Lord. It's not an exact mathematical equation, but it's an understanding that time is completely different for God. When we enter into eternal life, time is going to be completely different for us. When we go to the Lord and say, Jesus, why haven't you come back yet? Why are you waiting so long? Remember, it's from his perspective. He's got all of eternity. <laughs> so if he waits another thousand years, that's really not that long for him, right? And we hope it's a lot sooner. It could be at any point, at any time. In verse 5, you carry them away like a flood. They are like sheep. In the morning, they are like grass, which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and it grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and withers. This speaks of our frailty. 
this speaks of how quickly that we're headed to the grave. The analogy that's given here is as the grass, in the morning it flourishes, but then as the evening it cut down and is withered. We see this so clearly in Colorado. Our growth season is so short here in the springs. You may have noticed city council changed the watering laws where now you get to water three days a week. Lord bless you with that. Try to grow grass in Colorado Springs, watering three, three days a week. Time to go to zeroscaping, I think, is the message there. But even as you're trying to water your grass, it's such a short growing season, and that's our lives. It's so quickly we're, we're headed to dust. So quickly we're headed to destruction. And many times this terrifies us, doesn't it? As a culture and a society, we're trying to pretend that we're never going to go to the grave. That aging's not getting the best of us. That somehow destruction's not going to come my way. Death is not going to come my way. Verse 7, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we're terrified. Remember, Moses lived under the law. He was the giver of the law. The law points to God's grace. And under the law, we're terrified before God. And Moses says, we're in your anger. And we're consumed by your wrath. You've set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. One of the testimonies of the children of Israel during this wandering period is their sinfulness. The wilderness will have a way of bringing out our flesh and showing us our sin and showing us our our need for a savior. One of the things that I like about Psalms 90 is it's honest and it's transparent. You maybe wouldn't picture Moses describing life like this, but he's like, we just finished life all wore out. And isn't that the aspect of life sometimes? Isn't it? Or just go, I don't have enough strength. I'm just making it through the day. I'm just making it through the week. Someone comes to the end of their life, 70, 80, 90 years old, and they finish it with a sigh. And there's a bit of relief here, especially if you know the Lord going, wow, it's difficult to leave this life, but I'm so excited to enter into eternal life. In verse 10, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. Hey, there's your encouragement for the new year. There's your memory verse for the year, right? Moses, as he observes life, he's like, man, you get 70 or 80 years. If you're lucky, you're, you're on the 80 side. Isn't it amazing all these thousands of years later and we're still 70 to 80 years, right? Some people really beat the average, hit their 90s, hit, hit 100 years old. My, my great-grandma lived to be 101 years old. Every year, she got a little bit shorter, right? She got saved, no joke, at 99 years old. Talk about God's patience with you. Squeaked in at the very last. Waited 99 years and then received Christ as, as her Savior. But on average, 70 years. On average, 80, 80 years. But what are your days filled with? Well, they're filled with pain. They're filled with labor and they're filled with, with sorrow. And there's something inside of us that doesn't settle good with this. We say, there's got to be an exception here. This couldn't be my life, that it's going to be labor and sorrow 
all of my 70 or 80 years. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's high points, right? There's peaks. But until we go home to be with the Lord, there is going to be labor and sorrow. The second law of thermodynamics does not take a nap on this side of heaven. Your garage is always going to go from order to disorder. It never cleans itself. Never does, right? We're going to have sin on this side of heaven. There's going to be disease. There's the curse that we live under. We're going to have to work for provision. Jesus told us, in this life, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. Our hope is in eternity. Our hope is that as this life ends, we're going to enter into eternal life. And this is what Moses gets to, that he puts his focus upon in verse 11 and 12. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So looking at the holiness of God in the law does that for us. It says, who's to know your anger and your wrath and puts us in a place of fear. But now we get Moses' request. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. Without God teaching us to number our days, we will tend to live our lives that death will never visit us. Even when we see others that we're close to pass away, and we know here in our minds that death will come, that we all have an expiration date stamped on the back of our heads that only the Lord knows, somehow we think we're, we're immune to that, that my days don't have numbers. But they are numbered. So God wants us to do the math. Stop and think about it. Go, okay, on average, if you live 70 to 80 years, how many days does that give you? How many years does, does that give you? Then we're not guaranteed that we're going to live to be 70, that we're going to live to be 80. Some die young. Some die in their middle age. Some die as young children. So, Lord, would you teach me to young, number my days so that I may use my days wisely? May I live my life in light of eternity? I don't know why death is always such a shock, isn't it? Even though we've experienced it so many times before, when a close friend, when a loved one passes away, it's a shock to, to our system. And the scripture teaches us, the book of Ecclesiastes declares that when we go to the house of mourning, when we go to a memorial service, that it's good for us because it really teaches us. There's something about a funeral that's sobering because we know someday that we too are, are going to, to pass away. Would you be bold enough to make this your prayer like Moses? Say, God, I, I want to know that my life is short compared to eternity. I want to number my days. I don't want to take for granted the people that I have around me. You may think, man, my spouse is always going to be there. We sure hope so. We hope that we get to live into elderly years together, but that's not always the case. What, is it, what if this is your last year together and you just don't know? One of you's going to pass away. One of you's going to go home to be with the Lord. And we don't ever anticipate burying one of our children. That's the deepest pain in, in this life. But sometimes we can live our lives with this false guarantee that, well, nothing's ever going to happen to my kids. 
You know, I don't live with this sense of brevity that life is fragile and can take their, their lives for granted. Our, our friends get so used to them being there, God could take them home to, to be with the Lord. So numbering our days, but also numbering those that are around us. And when we start to number our days and we go, man, I want to live for the Lord. I want to love people. I want to redeem the time. I want to take advantage of every moment that God gives to me. What really matters in light of eternity? We can't take the material things with us. Only two things last for eternity. And that's the Lord and people. Relationship with Christ and relationship with people. Loving believers, loving unbelievers, investing in the Lord and investing in in people. It was my junior year of high school, and I'd really only been walking with the Lord for two years. It was our first year in Salt Lake City, Utah. We moved there between my sophomore and junior year because of my dad's job. Talk about a big change going from Grants Pass, Oregon to Salt Lake City. So here I am in Salt Lake City, and I'm reading Psalms 90. So as a new believer, you read stuff like this, and you tend to take it seriously, and you pray it in. So I'm reading Psalms 90, and I say, Lord, would you teach me to number my days so that I may gain a heart of wisdom? And I was journaling at the time, and I remember writing a simple prayer in my journal. A few days later, it was the last day of school. Our school wasn't too far from the Wasatch Mountains. My buddies and I say, when we get done with our finals, let's go for a hike up in the mountains. My brother was just home from college. He joined us for the hike. So we're going up this hike. We're pretty far into this canyon. And all of a sudden, I feel this sharp pain in my left side. And it was hurting really bad. And I'm like, man, I know I'm out of shape. I know it's off-season from basketball, but it shouldn't hurt this bad. And I keep walking. I keep going a little further. And now it's hurting more. And before you know it, I'm laying on the ground. And I'm not doing well. This is before cell phones, right? So my buddies decide we're going to run down the canyon, try to find someone that will let us in to use the phone to call a 911. And each minute that goes, the pain gets worse. I'm starting to feel like I'm going to pass out, shortness of breath, having a hard time breathing. And my brother's there looking at me, and I'm starting to say things like, you're such a good brother. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So he prayed for me, my brother Matt, he prayed for me right there. And then after he got done praying, praying for me, I could start to breathe just a little bit better. Look up and there's a helicopter that's trying to get me out of this canyon, but can't do it. So then here comes search and rescue and they take me down on a stretcher, get to the hospital and my lung had collapsed. One of the things that I was born with was blems on my lung. There are little soap bubbles on my lung that one of them popped and I had a pinhole in my lung and my lung collapsed 80%. And so if it would have collapsed all the way, then you're in danger of your heart rupturing. I don't know for sure, but I think that when my brother prayed for me, my lung stopped collapsing enough to where I was able to continue to breathe and get, get to the hospital. Spent, I think, four days in the hospital. That was back when they actually kept you in the hospital more than four hours, right? So got the lung inflated and, you know, went, went home. But God answered my prayer. Let me just put it that way. Like, he, he showed me how I was just one step from eternity. 
That's how close we are. We think that we're a long ways from stepping into eternity, and we're just one step. This body is so fragile. It's a miracle that you're alive. It's actually a miracle that you're breathing and you're living. All it takes is one little thing to go wrong, and you're, you're home to be with the Lord. And I didn't even mention traffic, right? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the amount of people that die on the roads in Colorado every year is crazy. I mean, you're, it's, it's, a, it's a real thing, right? We never know when we're going to go home to be with the Lord. So Lord, teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom, so that we can apply our lives to the things that matter. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servant. Moses is just crying out to the Lord, God, would you return? Looking for God to to show up. God, have compassion upon us, and we cry out for God's return as we walk through the wilderness of life. We look, Jesus, would you return? Would you rapture the church? Would you make everything ready, everything right? Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God, would you satisfy us early with your mercy? Would you give us your mercy early that we may be satisfied and glad all of our days? Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. God, would you make us glad? We've had affliction, but would you meet us with gladness? Would you meet us with rejoicing? That's okay to pray to the Lord. God, would you make us glad? We know there's been affliction, which we bring gladness into our lives. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. I like that. God, we want to see your work and we want to see your glory. In the light that our lives are short, God, help us to see your work. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see your hand. And then let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Let me go back to verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children and then, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Praying for God's beauty. God's beauty to be upon God's people. Many times through the wilderness journey, it wasn't very beautiful for the children of Israel. Moses must have been feeling weak as he wrote this song. His hands must have felt feeble. He must have been asking and wondering, is there anything significant that's happening or taking place? And God, would you establish the work of our hands? Here we are putting this work into this effort, but we need your hand to be upon the work of our hands. Would you establish the work of our hands? I believe that this is a great psalm for us as we start a new year. One thing we know about this year, 2020, is that there will be work. (laughs) We will have work. And many days our hands will be feeble and we'll be tired and we'll be weary. And in diligence and faithfulness, serve the Lord and do the work that he has given us. But ask that the Lord would establish the work of our hands. God, would you take the effort that we're putting in to our marriage, to our family, with our kids, my job, the workplace, school, wherever you find yourself, whatever your hands find yourself doing. And Lord, would you just bless it? Would you establish the work of our hands? And though Moses' life was difficult, 
And though there was challenge and there was a generation that passed away in the wilderness, there was that second generation that had faith that entered into the promised land that no longer were dwelling in tents and God did indeed establish the nation of Israel. I mean, here we are thousands of years later reading the news of the Israelites, reading the news that's coming out of Israel and the things that are happening with with current events. God really did establish the work of Moses' hands. So a few questions to consider in application. His first is, where am I dwelling? No, I'm not asking for your address. You don't have to give me your address. Not, not your physical dwelling, but where are you, you going to to be your refuge? We all go different places, different things to be our refuge. And sometimes those are sinful things, and they bring destruction in our lives. Sometimes they're not sinful things. It might be you're really dwelling at work. Work has become your refuge because of the difficulties of life. You're like, I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to work. I'm going to work a lot more. Even when I'm off work, I'm, I'm going to work. But you're terrified of sitting in stillness, sitting in quietness and, and rest. And so you go to work to try to deal with, with the pain. It could be even as good as something as working out and physical exercise. But that physical exercise has become your refuge, your, your dwelling place. It's, you've got to have it in order to have stability in your life. And that's been your refuge. That's where you're going for your place of, of comfort. It may be that you're going to relationships, your family, your friends, the body of Christ, and that has become your dwelling place. And all of these things are, are healthy in their right place, right? Like work in its right place, physical exercise in its right place, family and friends in the body of Christ in its right place. But there's only one dwelling place that's unchanging, one dwelling place that can really bring comfort and satisfaction to your soul, and that's the Lord. That's the Lord. Sometimes in life, God strips away other things so that we'll go to him, to being the dwelling place. So that our roots, our roots will go deep, 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 deep into his love. Nothing wrong with those other things, and yep, they provide some stability and some strength, but God, my dwelling place is with you. Like Moses, can we say, can we sing, can we write and say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Lord, you have been my dwelling place. So where are we dwelling? Where are we finding refuge? And then am I aware of my condition? You're like, what do I mean? Moses is aware of his own sinful condition and the sinful condition of those that he's traveling with. And he expresses it. He actually spends a large chunk of this time, of this psalm, basically saying, we're pretty messed up. Did you guys get that? <laughs> it's like, God, you know our sin. We, we've done all these things to have just cause for you to be angry at us. And we're wore out. And are we aware of our, our condition? Because I think when we become aware, aware of our condition, it makes us more hungry for God to be our dwelling place. And then the last question is, what's my request? Moses has a request here. What's my request on this first weekend of 2020? 
Is it, Lord, teach me to number my days? Lord, make me aware of the fact that life's short, that my life is short, that the lives of those around me, their lives are short, so that I can gain a heart of wisdom. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're our dwelling place and you are a faithful home. You're a faithful refuge. You're a faithful dwelling place. That you've been faithful through generations past. That you're faithful in our generation. We don't know what the future holds, but we know that you hold the future. So we choose to find refuge in you. We come to you for our comfort, for our security, for relationship, for fellowship with you. And may our roots just go deep into your faithfulness, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. We don't know how long our lives are going to last, how long the lives of our loved ones will be and our friends. So would you teach us to number our days so that we could gain a heart of wisdom? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.